Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Last week, we brought together three pioneers in the field of assistive technology for a little roundtable discussion. This week, we'll be continuing that conversation. We'll speak with Dean Blasey, Jim Fruchterman, and Ted Henter, who respectively made major contributions to the development of refreshable Braille displays, optical character recognition, and screen readers. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is, if you see a need, find a way to address it as Dean, Jim, and Ted have done. They each use their individual expertise and what they enjoy doing to make some major contributions to the lives of visually impaired people around the world. Including, among other people, Pete. We record these shows using his computer, and it's got a refreshable Braille display, it's running JAWS, it's running OpenBook, and for fun, he has read hundreds of books from Bookshare. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible by Logan Tech, makers of the electronic take-anywhere six-dot Braille label maker that produces crisp, clear Braille that strikes, scores, and cuts in seconds. More information on our family of devices and products is at logantech.com. Logan Tech, improving quality of life with technology. If you would like to have a promotional item for your service or organization appear Eyes on Success, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or look on our website for more information. Last week, Dean, Jim, and Ted gave fairly thorough introductions of themselves. If you want to hear that, listen to last week's episode, which was number 1740. But this week, we're going to have them introduce themselves just enough so you can recognize their voices. I'm Dean Blazy. I'm Jim Fruchterman. I'm Ted Henter. We were a core part of growing the assistive technology business into having widespread impact on the community of people who are blind. We, we were there for sort of the golden age. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to hear extended individual interviews with the three of them about their respective technologies, you can listen to the Encore presentations we did with them in 1722, 1723, and 1724. Just type those numbers into the search field on our website and those shows will pop up. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is Dean, Jim, and Ted's lessons learned and future visions. So I had a question I'd like to pose to each of you in turn. 
all three of you were very successful businessmen founding these great companies that benefit people around the world. And, you know, people see how wonderfully it worked out and all the good things that happened. But I know from talking to each of you that there were many frustrations along the way. And I was wondering, you know, people learn from their mistakes or things that go wrong. And I was wondering if we could tell our listeners about something that either went wrong or some mistake that happened that you made that you learned from and benefited you in the long run. You want to start with you, Dean? Well, the the one I can think of is that when I started in this business, it was 1976, and I started with a partner. I mean, I, mean, I could say it's a mistake, but it's, it really wasn't. We started out, and after 10 years, we ended up uh, selling the business, but uh, in reality, we just shut it down. We sold it to Enabling Technologies. You might remember Maryland Computer Services. Yes, from a long time ago. Yeah, we were in business for 10 years. And the, probably the biggest mistake we made was borrowing money from the banks instead of growing from profits. And we tried to grow too fast. And we were one of the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the country. And, you know, that seems like a great honor to be one of those companies. But in fact, it puts you in a danger zone because to grow that fast requires a lot of cash and a lot of very careful management. And we didn't have either one of those. Um, I was an engineer, not a businessman. So I learned the business as I went. So the lesson for me there was to well, to grow only as fast as you have the cash flow to grow. So when I started Blazy Engineering, I uh, I did it that way. I told the bank and I told people, I, first of all, I told the bank I didn't need any money. I wasn't going to borrow money. And I told other people that I would uh, sell Braille and Speaks and people would pay up front. And everybody laughed at me because, because, you know, you just don't do that. But in fact, that's what happened. People were willing to pay for the device because it took me a while to ramp up production. And when I did, uh, I shipped them and more and more people found out about it and bought them and, and it worked out. You know, as sales go up and down and the economy uh, gets better and worse, we didn't have the issue of cash because we didn't have any debt. So that was a big thing I learned um, in addition to having a partner. So it sounds like that experience really benefited you in the future to make Blazy engineering a really solid company that you know wasn't affected by these ups and downs in the market. That's correct. Yeah. When, when the bank called us at Maryland Computer Services and told us that we were essentially bankrupt and they were going to um, shut us down, we had to get together and decide we had to lay off about half of our staff, just about half of our staff overnight, over a weekend. And it was probably the most difficult weekend of my life to, to have to do that. And you know, you learn from that. You learn a lot from that. I'll bet. Yeah. The other thing I learned was when Ted says, hey, Dean, let's let's get rid of the guy that bought our companies and put somebody else in charge because he's doing a bad job. You don't have to listen to Ted Hinter. <laughs> <laughs> Ted? That's right, Dean. <laughs> that wasn't he the smoothest move I've ever made. Can you <laughs> no. We're not kidding. It really happened. Oh, my gosh. So how about you, Jim? Are there any experiences along the way in the companies you've been with and founded that, you know, look kind of negative at the time, that, but that you learned from and ultimately benefited you? So I would like to go back to sort of Dean's observation that you learn a lot from things that go badly. And I would echo that. 
the way that I now say it is I say, hey, I started seven for-profit high-tech companies in Silicon Valley, and only five failed. And every one of those failed in a different way and taught me a different lesson. You know, The first one was I started a company with seven equal partners, and we were all engineers. That was not a great idea. Oops, uh, right. And of course, what got me started my entrepreneurial career was joining one of the first private rocket companies in the United States, and the rocket blew up on the launch pad. And I still have, you know, the rocket fin in my office as a reminder of uh, of that experience. So I think part of being a serial entrepreneur is, you know, being bold enough to try something, but also being realistic enough to stop trying it when it's not going to work, because people will end up talking about the things that you did that did work and they'll forget about the things that didn't. But, you know, I think the experience of laying off people is the worst experience that any entrepreneur has. And it's very hard to imagine someone who hasn't had to do that if they've been in the business a long time, because even your best plans don't, don't come through. And the great thing about where Silicon Valley is now is people now worship failure. It's, you know, it's, it's almost all revolving around trying to fail fast, which really means learning what works and what doesn't work and do more of what does work. And I guess the last thing I'd like to mention is, is that when I was early on in my career as an entrepreneur, I thought I could do everybody's job better than them. And uh, let's just say I learned that that wasn't the case. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we're both retired scientists, and we worked in corporate research at a major corporation, which was Xerox. And let me tell you, everybody in the building thought that each of us, well, just the one who was speaking, could do anything better than anybody else. And it's interesting when you get a couple of hundred people with that mindset trying to work together. Yeah. And that's what a company and a team is all about, is getting people to work together and and realizing that sometimes even if you could do that job better, maybe you shouldn't be, I don't know, packing up boxes, even though I loved doing that, um, or doing accounting. The other interesting thing that you mentioned was that, you know, one of these companies was started with just like seven engineers, you know, thinking that you could do the whole task yourself. And I think, you know, what that indicates to me is that it really takes a diverse set of skills to run in a company. You can have the technology down really well and the really advanced technology, but if you don't have the marketing skills and the sales skills and distribution skills and all that, it's not going to work. So Ted, what lessons have you learned through the years when things went wrong and somehow you turned them into a positive experience? You just have to be realistic about your capabilities and your limits. When I was racing motorcycles as a young man, I crashed my motorcycle a bunch of times just by trying too hard and thinking I could take that corner faster than the other guy. Or I'd try things <laughs> on my motorbike, changing carburetors, changing ignitions, and uh, usually ended up going, you know, not such a good idea. So you got to stay within your limits. When it comes to software, in the early days of JAWS, we were trying hard in DOS, and we just released a product, maybe two, that would just full of bugs didn't work right and it, it almost put us out of business we luckily did recover and eventually jaws became quite successful but the basic idea is just uh, be realistic about your capabilities and do what you can do but don't try to do too much 
It's interesting, too, that Jaws is it's still on the market. It's still being sold after all these years, probably 25 years or more, right, Ted? And it's still being yep. sold and doing well. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Braille it's Speaks just... came and went. Braille Lights came and went. But Jaws is still out there. Well, we have to give credit to a guy like Glenn Gordon. He's the chief technical officer. And Eric Damery, he's uh, not sure what his official title is, but he Jaws, sold it to everybody that was around. And Jerry Bowman, he was our chief operating officer. There's a lot of uh, very talented people that worked there when I was there and also that are still there. It's a company effort, a lot of good people, not just Ted Hunter. Well, and I think a lot of it happens, you know, from, from at the top and the kind of environment that the leaders set up. And I guess that would be very important in any company. Yeah, well, I have to admit, I, met, I learned a lot about that, running a company and being a leader from Dean. And then after I got into the business, I learned more from Jim as well. So you got some good people on the phone here. I think it's worth acknowledging that we were a core part of growing the assistive technology business into having widespread impact on the community of people who are blind. We, we were there for sort of the golden age. I mean, there were some people who yeah. you know, were predecessors or Maryland Computer Services were predecessors. It was VTech and Telesensory. But I think it was these companies were the ones that actually penetrated the community to the point of changing what was normal for blind people in terms of what they could do. And the, and the thing that strikes me sometimes is how little the field has actually evolved since we sold out to Freedom Scientific uh, 17 years ago. I mean, not only is JAWS still on the market, doing essentially what JAWS was doing when Ted was running it, but Open Book is still on the market, right? Wow. <laughs> and, and, and even though you can say, well, the Braille and Speak isn't there, well, come on, every Braille note taker that you see on the market is, you know, is a, is a descendant or cousin of the you know original Braille products that, that, that came out with the Braille and Speak. That was the note taker product. And everything else was either it's descendant or a copy. So, yeah, yeah. Now, sure. people before us, by the way, we might want to mention some names. Uh, Jim Bliss, yeah. um, who died a few years ago, uh, invented the Opticon and and a bunch of other things. He's uh, he was a good guy and uh, really really started the industry. I think Larry Israel's another one, mostly low vision, but those two were in business before before I came along, and they had good companies. Did really push the technology. Yeah. And I want to just emphasize, you know, when I started uh, Arkenstone, the predecessor to Benetech in 1989, I told my wife that I would do this nonprofit tech thing for a year and then go back to regular Silicon Valley companies. And that didn't happen. <laughs> and one of the reasons it didn't happen, and I'm going to be really honest, is because of the people in this field. I mean, when yeah. I was regular tech, you know, I would go to Comdex and, you know, go to the Hayes modem party and hang out with 1,500 of my closest friends, not. And when I got <laughs> to this field, I mean, I found people, and I, this is how we started our conversation. It's we not only grew businesses and built an industry together, but we also liked to spend time together. We enjoyed each other. We advised each other. We mentored each other. And as probably the youngest guy of the trio, um, I think I benefited the most from what these guys had already learned from business in getting their companies going. But we worked together to make it happen. 
We've been talking about the progress that's been made over the last couple of decades. Where do you think you'd like to see access technology go in the future? Anybody? Well, it would really be nice if all the major companies had a knowledge about how things can be made accessible from the very beginning, you know, without any extra cost, just the knowledge part of it, that you don't put a flat panel and 20 buttons on it and expect it to be accessible. You know, if you want to use a touchscreen, it's kind of okay because we've got things like the cell phones that use them and we've made them accessible in spite of the fact that they're really not very efficient. But like microwave ovens, you know, they have the flat panels with no outlines at all, even for the buttons, you know, to avoid doing things like that. Um, that's just one example. Uh, but if we had some kind of a design document that we've talked about for years and years, but I don't know that it was ever done. Greg Vanderheiden was working on such a thing. Jim, maybe you know if he's done that. He's still plugging away. Um, I mean, um, raising the floor. Uh, the Global Inclusive Infrastructure Project, you know, and whether or not it's Greg that actually makes it happen, what Greg envisioned is happening in the world. I mean, again, so many of these leaders were talking about predicted the way the world was going to go and then help make it happen. And so to continue with, with Dean, what I would like to think is, first of all, a born accessible future where technology products, all should just be born accessible. They all should work. We know enough about how to do this and it doesn't really add cost anymore and of any significant amount. I think it would be just great if every product did this and that being blind or having other disabilities, you know, everything just works for you. And we're seeing this with the technologies that are coming out. I mean, you know, the Alexa and the Google voice product, you know, these are products that are mass market products and yet the voice in, voice out, you know, interface is terrific for people. We're going to see more of that. The, the second thing that I want to identify, and it's the good news for people who have perceptual disabilities, is that computers are getting better at perceiving the world than humans are. They're getting better at recognizing things. They're going to get better at recognizing speech. They're going to get better at driving cars. And so I think that people who have blindness and vision problems are going to find themselves less and less disadvantaged because computers are just going to be able to do and everyone is going to take advantage of them, not just specialized technology. And a lot of these things are going to look like the things that used to be exclusively the province of accessibility researchers and companies are now going to be basically mass market solutions. So that is, a, I think, a pretty exciting vision. Now, there's some other downsides to it, but I think for blind people, it's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to add something, Ted? Yes, I, I agree with Dean and Jim. Uh, excellent comments. The most frustrating thing for me these days is we know how to make the web accessible. We know how to make software accessible. But so many things that I run into are not accessible just because the people don't know about it or don't give a hoot about it or don't try to make it accessible. The web pages, a lot of these things are so uh not difficult to navigate, but there's so much junk on the web, uh, advertising and stuff like that. And you might get one paragraph and then a link to go to another web page so they can put more advertising on it. It's very frustrating to have to read a web page from top to bottom and, and see all the junk that's out there. And the other thing is, I've bought some software recently, or at least demo versions, free trial versions, 
that I can't even install. A simple software installer that's just not accessible. It's crazy. It's like things were 20 years ago. We've solved all those problems. All those problems are well known and well documented, and especially the solutions are well documented, but yet they're ignored. I don't know what the real solution is, but that's just uh, one of the problems that I see. Yeah, good point. I guess the best we can do is to keep raising awareness and bringing these issues to the attention of developers and webmasters. I mean, I always do. If I find an inaccessible website, an inaccessible application, they always hear from me. And sometimes they're willing to fix it. You know, sometimes it's being aware that there is an issue. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I've done the same with, I don't want to mention any names, but one one major company had a CAPTCHA where you're supposed to type in what you see on the screen. And they also had a voice version of it. But the voice version didn't work. <laughs> I hit the link, nothing happened. <laughs> Great. And I called them on the phone, I emailed them, it took them about 30 days to fix it, which was just kind of crazy. And another thing is a web page that's specifically oriented towards blind people. I won't say what it is. But after I've told them for three or four times now, they still put out a link that's a graphic with no description. Jeez. Frustrating stuff like that. that the world just doesn't care that much because, well, because we're blind people. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nice if there was college curriculum and that included accessibility in so many different fields. Maybe someday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, well, there, there is college curriculum like that, but there's no real mandate to push people in that direction. There's no rules, no laws. Even the Americans with Disabilities Act, I travel with a guide dog a lot. And believe it or not, in 2017, I went to the airport a month ago in Tampa, Florida, and they wouldn't let my dog on the airplane. That's amazing. And, you know, I'm so PO'd about that. That was a, one airline. I went right across the hall to the, another airline, and they said, sure, we'll take you to Panama and your dog. And sure don't. The next day I was in Panama. It's just... Crazy stuff like that. Yeah, I hope you pursue that, Ted. <laughs> I'm talking to a lawyer, I can tell you that. Good, you should. You should. Yeah, That's how I, we get things changed. Well, I think, I think you know, there'll be a vision of the future where, I mean, suing people, which is what we have to do now. I mean, NFB and, and pro bono lawyers can only do so much. I, I think we just need to get it to where either everyone just does it in the normal course or the machine intelligence gets so good that it just routes around all this stuff, just like you had a personal assistant who is looking at it and figuring it out. And I think that's within reach. So we don't really care what people do. We just might be able to make the machines figure it out for us. The thing that's really getting me excited is, you know, I mean, we started in the field of character recognition so that we could read to blind people, but we could be using the same techniques for all the kinds of problems that people are facing. Like the ones that Ted was just talking about. Yeah, yeah. Good point, Jim. It's nice to be able to draw to a close on a positive note. So I appreciate that comment. So we've been talking to you guys for a long time, and I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure our listeners will enjoy hearing some of these conversations and your thoughts on accessibility and what you guys are up to now. Are there any final words that any of you would like to uh, speak about? Keep plugging away and don't give up. Working in this field was the best choice I ever made in terms of a career path. And 
it's made a huge difference to me. I'm just a much happier guy having found this field and this reason to exist. Well, I can second that one. I owe that to Tim Cranmer, who uh, was my blind mentor when I was when I was a kid, got me in this. I, I have to agree with these two gentlemen. And uh, when I met Dean, I was working in a hotel, and I bought one of his very early talking computers. And that was one of the best things that happened to me. So I think the point is, be prepared so when opportunities will come along. Mm-hmm. And when they do, you just want to make sure you're prepared. And luckily, I was I was somewhat prepared, but Dean gave me a good chance to think good. Oh, thank you guys so yeah, much. Thank you guys so much. It's great to reconnect. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah. So we are probably going to turn this into two episodes because you had so much wonderful stuff to say. And just to let you know, we're going to follow it with an episode where Pete talks about what his life has been like using access technology starting in the 1950s when he had a little monocular telescope in school all the way through using all of this stuff that you guys made possible. I'd like to hear that. Yeah. Well, that's next week's show. Now for this week's final item. Well, great, guys. I thank you guys for sharing your time. And, uh, you know, I know you got lots of things to do and stuff. It must have been kind of fun for you guys to reconnect, I guess, huh? It was great. Yeah. It really is. really is. It really is. is. So when's the next time you three are getting together? As soon as Dean has a new sailboat. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ted, we're selling the farm up here, so the wine cellar's got to go. All right. Well, I guess that's an invitation. You just tell me when. Yeah, we can help you. Okay. Take care, guys. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening in on this interview as much as we did conducting it. It was just so awesome to speak with these three men who've made such major contributions in the field of access technology. And it was really great of them to share their time with us and our listeners. I'm sure everybody will enjoy hearing that conversation. Anyway, as we mentioned, we also did individual episodes with each of these people And if you'd like to hear those, those are in our searchable archives of over 350 shows by now. And as usual, you can go to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net, where you'll find links to those shows. And as I mentioned last week, you can put the term pioneer into our search field and find other shows where we talk with these three people and others in the field of assistive technologies. You can also put in a show number or a keyword into the search field to come up with a summary of that show along with links to the audio and show notes. That's it for show number 1741. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the evolution of assistive technologies. We'll take a historical walk down memory lane and talk about the evolution of assistive technologies for the visually impaired. In particular, we'll discuss some of the aids and technologies that Pete used as a young boy, as a student, as a research scientist, and now as a retiree, and what accommodations he made as his vision declined. 
If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.tiesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and on audioboom.com, at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.